0: We are taking our time um, to learn and to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to take our time word by word, verse by verse, and today our message is concerning verse 4. So if you can just take a look at it with me. Uh, Begins in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We discussed that last week. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so this week we're going to talk about those who mourn. That is the topic for today. Last week when we talked about the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, you notice in each verse, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 through 10, begins with the word blessed. We said blessed is the idea of happy, but not an outward happiness, not a worldly happiness built on circumstance, you have some kind of pleasure or money has come in, it's an inward state of being. The godly are at peace with God, and because they are at peace with God, there is a joy That bubbles from the inside. That's what Christ is talking about. It's the inward state of the spirit, not outward circumstances. So some uh, versions of the Bible will begin with happy. Happy are those who are poor. In verse 4, they would put it like this, happy are those who mourn. Or you could say happy are those who are sad. Now if you look at this, this is what is called An oxymoron, as Jared said, it's completely two opposites. It doesn't make sense. It's clearly confusing, which is another oxymoron. And the idea, what does happy are those who mourn mean? What does it mean, happy are those who are sad? Some people, believe it or not, have taken this to mean that Christianity is to be a very somber endeavor. So those who are most grouchy and disgruntled are probably the most holy of us, you know. So if they come into church and they shuffle in in pious demeanor, frown on their face, they probably know God more than the rest of us. And definitely, according to my grandmother, when we'd walk into church, no smiling. Justin, no, smi- he's smiling again. This is not a place to smile. And if I smiled in church with my grandma, I'd get a slap behind the back of the head. This is God's house. Oh, okay. So you could say, it's really the church curmudgeon must be the closest to God. That is why we consider Jared Doty as the closest to God on our staff. He is the most reverent. I'll give you an illustration of what I mean by this. My grandmother, for instance, uh, on Christmas Day sometimes, she'd help my mom make Christmas dinner. You know, they'd have a big ham and all of the fixings on the table, mashed potatoes, gravy. And she would lay out all of the spread, and she'd have us all sit down, and then she would say, enjoy your meal, I'm going into the other room to fast, because this is Christ's birthday. My, mom, my dad would say, Ma, what do you mean you're going to fast? Don, this is the Lord's day. I'm just going to respect it. As if that piety was somehow better because she was more mournful. That is not what this means. That is not what this means at all. It's not an outward expression of false piety. It's an inward reality. It's inward reality of grieving, of being sorrowful. Um, the word actually means, it's an aching of the loss of a loved one. It's inside. It's in my heart. And especially, it's after I look at the world, I look at everything around me, then I look inside, I say something is not right. That's what mourning is all about. We'll talk about that in a second. But I want to kind of bring you up to speed to the idea of the Sermon on the Mount and it's about kingdom living. If you remember last week we said each verse in the Sermon of the Mount is like a chain, a heavenly chain. One verse is linked to the next verse which is linked to the next verse. And so it's a natural spiritual progression. Last week we said verse 3 was this idea, it's the doorway into heaven. Blessed are those who are poor or who get low, who are humble and they see God rightly and themselves rightly. So you could say verse 3 has me seeing rightly. I finally, when I evaluate myself based on the majesty of God, I realize just how needy and vulnerable and small I am. And we talked all about that last week. Theologically, when your eyes are opened, it's called illumination. I see and I notice things I never noticed before. And that leads naturally to verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. And mourning is, I would put it like this, it's responding appropriately to what I see. I begin to feel the way God wants me to feel. I start becoming a fully alive, a fully integrated person. That's what integrity means. Through and through, I am not duplicitous. I am not a two-faced person. The things that are really happening on the outside, I feel the same way on the inside. It's sort of like Pinocchio. Pinocchio was a boy that was made of wood. And then he was given a wish to become a real boy, and slowly he put on flesh, and he could feel. When I was a kid, I would help my brother with a paper route. I lived across the street from Lake Erie. And in the winter, especially in January and February, the lake would freeze over, and it would be freezing cold off of the lake. And our paper route was long. We would uh, deliver big newspapers to, to houses that had long driveways. And I'll never forget the Sunday paper. We had to stack the Sunday paper at the sports page, classified ads, comic section, food section. So each Sunday paper is huge. And then we had to take that Sunday paper and walk it all the way down, the house and then back. And it was about an hour and a half in the morning, and sometimes really early in the morning, and I had these really thin gloves on. Kmart specials, you know, the kind that are plastic, and if it gets less than zero, they crack. Really cheap gloves. But I can remember coming home, and my hands were ice cold. I couldn't feel them. I'd go, Mom, I can't feel my hands. And she'd say, Come here. She'd rip off my gloves, take them, and put them under lukewarm water in the sink, and then slowly I'd get feeling back. First, they'd get warm, and then they would hurt like crazy, like pinpricks all around. And then they would throb. I'd go, Mom, they're killing me. Ah, my hands are killing me. And she said, that's good. That means they're not frostbite. You have sensitivity. That's what verse 4 is. I finally have sensitivity. I'm becoming alive. And mourning is the first thing I feel. Listen to how Ezekiel puts it. He's talking about when God puts his spirit into a person. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. And how does he do it? First thing he has to do is remove this heart of stone. A cold, callous, unfeeling heart. God takes out and then he gives me a heart of flesh. When the spirit comes and lives on the inside, I have a heart of flesh, it's it's sensitive, it's tender, I'm real. That's what mourning is all about. So not only is a person of the kingdom able to see, now he or she feels. And according to Jesus, one of the very first emotions that should grip you is that you begin to realize life is not the way it's supposed to be. And it breaks you. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean about this experience of mourning. And it's a very vivid example. It's a true story, but it's disturbing. It's a disturbing story. There's a well-known um, story by British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge used to work for what's called the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company in England, around the 1970s. 60s and 70s. And there was an event in in his life which showed him just how depraved he was. He had been faithful and true to his wife for many, many years. His whole marriage, he was faithful. But he said there lurked in the back of his mind a gnawing desire to have an affair just to see what it was like. He said it would gnaw at One day... When Mugridge was working in India for a few months by himself, he saw his chance. Taking his usual morning swim in the Ganges River, Mugridge saw a naked Indian woman bathing by herself some distance away. Thinking that no one would ever know, he swam upstream toward the woman. Muggridge said it was a difficult swim because He was struggling not just against the currents of the water, but he was struggling against the currents of his own moral conscience. Swimming underwater, Muggeridge surfaced near the woman, and what he saw gave him the shock of a lifetime. The woman was a leper. Muggeridge says her nose was eaten away. There were sores and white blotches all over her skin. Her feet were twisted in and deformed. She was toothless. Her eye sockets eroded. and The ends of her fingers were completely gone. She looked more like an animal than a human. And then he writes, the first thing that came to his mind was what a wretched woman this is. But then at that same moment, he was overwhelmed by the devastating truth of this. What a wretched man I am. This is what theologians call the depravity of man. We are diseased in here. And when we finally can see, it should shock us. We try to deny it. We overlook it. We re-describe it or give it different definitions. But the fact remains, we are all capable of many kind of evils. And we know it. Especially good at lying. So you could say the diseases of the body are not nearly as hideous as the grotesque disease of the soul. And it should bring us to a point of disgust and grief, or, as Jesus says, mourning. There's a man who wrote a very famous series on the Sermon on the Mount, two-chapter series called. And his name's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very talented preacher in England in the 1970s. And he says this about the subject of mourning and why very few Christians mourn, and most live in this, what he would call, a sugary street world of positivity. We ignore the reality of what's going on. He says, here's the reason why. He says, the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin meaning we really don't understand how corrosive sin is. We play with it. And so as a result, most of us have lost sensitivity because we've downplayed sin's destruction. We are like Malcolm Mugridge before he saw the leper. But when God begins to work on you, you start to see the world the same way as Mugridge did after he saw the leper. And as you start looking around the world, you notice and you say to yourself, there is something desperately wrong with, first of all, the world. It's not supposed to be like this. Why is there so much sorrow and confusion? It is, that it is as if Eden has turned into hell. What was supposed to be a place filled with fruit trees and vines and grapevines and ferns has." now overgrown with thistles and thorns. We should grieve when we see people mistreated, the unending wars, the poor are trampled. We should grieve when we see lust and perversion robbing people of their innocence, or when science is turned into satanic experimentation, especially of the body. It's so easy these days to see relationships severed. Why is it the people that we once loved, we can't even talk to them anymore? And of course, we talk about it all the time, political hatred infests everything. Sin has destroyed this planet and has made it miserable. Miserable. You could also wonder why there's something desperately wrong with the frailty of human life. Death is not right. And we know deep in our bones that God never intended for us to lose those we love, and yet we do. We are designed to live forever, but yet sin comes in and it kills, it takes no prisoners, and no one gets out of here alive. Dave, I miss Kathy. I miss Kathy. I miss Phil Potter. I miss Murray Potts. I miss Greg Van Houten. I miss my dad. Something wrong. But Jesus is talking really mostly about there's something desperately wrong with me. There really is something wrong in here. Why am I so quick to judge others? Why are you so quick to judge others? Why are we so competitive? Why do I hate? Why do I slander people? Why are there people that are so hard for me to talk to? Why do I want things that are not good for me? And most of all, and most of all, Why am I so lazy when it comes to meeting with God and delighting in His law? I should want to obey, but I don't. The biggest enemy, the biggest enemy to peace and joy and well being is not out there. It's not. It's not over there. It's not in that group. It's not way over there. It's here in me. It's in me. It's in you. I am my own worst enemy. So you could say we all have this disease. There's this malady, this illness. We call it the flesh. We call it the old nature. But I would say it's simply the disease of our heart. And when the Spirit of God takes up residence in my life, He wants to do surgery, and He'll begin to do surgery. He will show me the parts of me that need to be fixed. That's what Jesus means by blessed are those who mourn. Paul talks about it, and I want you to listen to this. It's a very famous verse, Romans 7, but it's Paul mourning over his flesh. Listen to what he says. When I want to do good, and this is Romans 7, 21 to 24. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What a wretched man I am. That's a statement of mourning. Look at me. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Did you know, and this, this may be the most important part of this message, it is impossible to cure something unless you think there is an actual problem or there is actually something that needs to be cured. If something doesn't bother you, you'll never address it. And it, in turn, it won't get better. It won't. There's a difference between paying lip service to something and actually lamenting, weeping, and being cut to the heart. So you could say this. The ability to mourn is one of the greatest gifts God ever bestows upon a person. That is why Jesus says mourning is a blessed thing. I would even say this. I think mourning is the thing. What hurt Jesus the most, he would walk through Israel and he'd walk through Palestine and Jerusalem. And there was one day he looked at the people and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I long to gather you together as a hen gathereth its chicks, but you would not come. They would not come because they saw no need to come. Sure, Jesus is a great guy. He does wonderful miracles. I love to hear him teach, but who needs him? I do. I do. I need to be healed. It's very interesting talking about the Malcolm Muggridge story about leprosy. In the Bible, leprosy is always an analogy for sin. And when you look at the illness of leprosy, it begins by having a lack of sensitivity on the extremities. So when a leper gets a sliver or they stub their toes, they don't feel it. And so because they don't feel it, infection starts setting in. And then when infection starts setting in, you get gangrene and that's why they lose fingers, eye sockets, nose, because they don't feel anything. In like manner, the sinner is the one who continues to destroy himself by acts that are sinful but they don't even blush no sensitivity satan wants us to believe that maturity is cool it's being cool it's it's not caring about the mess that's around us it's being indifferent to horrid things man that's cool or you know, laughing at perversion, but that's not maturity. That is spiritual leprosy. Sensitivity is an incredible blessing because it causes me to seek a cure to what is killing me. So, mourning pleads and begs for healing. And then, when I plead and beg for healing, God gives me a cure. Listen to the cure. So, I just wrote, read you Romans 7 the very end, 21 to 24, and then Romans 7 to 8, Paul gives the cure. He says this, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now, right now, no condemnation. That's called comfort. I was talking to a person this week who came to my office and was just talking about how when they sin, they just always feel guilty, as if God's never pleased with them. Never. And I had him read this verse. Did you know, are you in Christ Jesus? Yeah, look what verse, chapter 8 of Romans, verse 1 says. There is, right now, no condemnation. It's like, you're kidding. God doesn't condemn me? No! Now that is comfort. But you won't get there unless you grieve. I mean, really want to change. You don't really need to elaborate on comfort because comfort is something that just happens. It's kind of letting off a release valve off of a hot water heater. It just happens. But what the Spirit needs to convince you of is indwelling sin. Maybe the greatest illustration of this is found in Luke 5 1 through 11. If you can go to the book of Luke, I want to show you something. This is the story of Simon Peter. And how Jesus got a hold of them. Simon Peter was a, you know, expert fisherman. Lived his whole life on Galilee. And one day he meets the Lord. Starting in chapter 5 verse 1. Listen to how it reads. On one occasion, Luke 5 1. On one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked Simon to put out a little from the land, and Simon is Peter. And Jesus sat down on the boat and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep and Let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. In other words, it's a waste of time. Saying it to Jesus, that's a waste of time. We took nothing. You want us to do that? But, okay, at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners on the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That is mourning. He realized, oh, I was talking to the Lord of creation in a very rude manner. I was treating him wrong. And not only that, he knew that Jesus knew this man. And he said, away from me, I am sinful. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. This is comfort. Do not be afraid. For now on, you will be catching men. So instead of condemnation, Jesus now wants to use him. It's amazing. And when they had brought their nets to land, they left everything and followed him. Now watch this. Watch the next verse. It's very interesting. Watch what the next sin is. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Sin is sneaky. We don't fully understand the extent that the world has been ruined and marred by it. One day, I, in a way, I got to see it with my own eyes. A um, a father came into my office to tell me what happened to their child. Their child was mixed up in some terrible decisions. They said they loved their child and they prayed for him for sixteen years, and this child was caught up in the results of sin that was destroying them. And a the father was crying on my shoulder and he said, I wanted a better life for him. This is not right. This is not right, he said. And as I was thinking about it, after I saw that father just crushed, leaving my office, I said, this is exactly how God feels about us when we get caught in sin. Sin doesn't make God mad. It it breaks His heart. When He sees us caught up in sin, His heart says, I wanted a better life for you. This isn't right. This isn't right. To me, you know when you are starting to mourn, when God's opinion starts mattering. I think sinners who aren't saved could care less what God thinks and they actually get mad at him because they want to hide in their sin. I think when the Spirit of God comes in you, you start looking to God and saying, I really hurt my dad and I'm sorry.